You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review in Blaze Media Land here in Maryland. And it is Thursday. This week has flown by so much. It is February 14th. And you know what that is, Valentine's Day. But for some of us, Every day is Valentine's Day, um, and we are certainly happy to spend so much more time with the misses. Um, I'm just really happy. I made it my my business this week not to spend every night on the phone writing, researching, and just like zombieing and just totally ignoring my wife. It, it's something really to just consider. Um, you know, as you just think about romance and your marriage and everything it just in this day and age it's, it's not just in this field in so many other fields really so many professions nowadays that old picture of everyone eating breakfast together going out to work and then coming back eating dinner together and just nine to five being out of out of work you know until you come back the next day is really over with that era is over with so it's something to really double down on and uh, strengthen our family ties. Just wanted to start off the show today with something a little different. Some of you may have noticed that throughout the evolution of this show, in recent months, I've been trying to spend more time storytelling, bringing on guests, not just discussing things philosophically and with data and with information, and we're going to continue doing that, but to really just try to bring the essence of what's going on on the ground on the immigration issue at the border in our communities from a drug perspective, from a crime perspective, from a public charge perspective. Um, Obviously, a lot of this is borne out in my recent article on Hidalgo County. It's really our third in a series about Hidalgo County, New Mexico, trying to just tell the story where I quote from the guy who runs the little tiny seven EMS, seven man team of EMS and the county commissioner who lived there his whole life. He's a retired teacher just talking about the way the social services of that tiny county are strained, the healthcare concerns, the criminal problems from the cartels and some of the illegals. And The more I do this, the more I do this, the more I'm taken in by the notion that we are leaving so much on the table as conservatives. The left has the ability to take any event that they believe proves the veracity of their views on a certain policy that in their estimation will help them promote a certain policy outcome that they believe logically flows from that event or that narrative, that story. And they have the ability to make that viral, make every news agency talk about it, and make everyone in America know about it. Often overstating 
a certain problem. So, for example, everyone knows about we have a major problem with school shootings. So they could promote their gun control agenda. We have so many things that go on in this country every day that if you had a steady drumbeat for weeks and months and years demonstrating the ubiquitous nature of illegal alien DUIs and how they're fully re- solely responsible for the drug problem. All the criminal problems, the public charge, the cultural problems, the problems in our hospitals, the problems in our schools, what's being done to our ranchers. The stories about how the cartels literally not just run our border, but have operations on our interior. And how we have ranchers that are now scared to even report crimes because they believe they are being surveilled by cartels on our side of the border. I can go on and on all the things that I'm very proud that we've been able to build here at the conservative conscience. But I'm just one voice. And what I'm noticing more and more is that we just don't have the resources. We just don't have enough people giving over these stories. And I'm still struggling. I'm just speaking from the heart here, just off the cuff, speaking my mind, lamenting the fact that we just don't have enough of a movement. This is why I'm trying to work on this idea, struggling with how to conceptualize and then implement it of what I called last year, referred to as citizens' task forces, where we don't have enough people doing this full-time to actually get on the radar. But maybe if we had a force multiplier of people that do other things for a living, like you guys, most of you guys, to kind of help out with your stories, or if it's a policy expertise, you know, if you work in healthcare, share your expertise, and we kind of... I don't know, somehow organize committees where it's almost like pro bono. It's almost just, you know, everyone in their spare time because we just don't have the money to start a real think tank, a real activist group, a real series of groups that will actually aggregate this stuff, track it, analyze it, use dissemination of information, communications to get it out to people and succeed. That's what the left has. We don't have this. I'm mentioning this now because, you know, a bunch of people have invited me down to the border. Different sheriffs, some of them we've had on the show, some of these officials in Hidalgo County to go and report on what's going on, maybe do some audio, video write ups to give people firsthand the best I can what's going on and to actually tell the story and show it, really show the story rather than just telling it. Picture's worth a thousand words, and we need more of that. But you know, it's funny. I mean, everything takes money. Wouldn't cost a tremendous amount. And I'm willing to pay a couple hundred dollars to do it, but it's more than that. I mean, just the airfare traveling around, it's very difficult because you have to connect on multiple different flights if you want to do different parts of the border. And, you know, it's 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 going to be $1,500 or so, and that much I'm not going to shell out. And, you know, I was trying to get it approved internally, but, you know, we just don't have the money for that. Because a lot of what I'm doing 
a lot of this stuff is is for a cause. It's it's you know in a for profit media company, which is what we are. To add to the work I'm doing, I'm lucky enough to be able to do what I'm doing, but to try to augment it with more staff or trips and things like that, it's very hard to justify it. I'm just speaking very frankly about what's going on, and it just got me thinking that this is a broad problem. We don't have any of this on our side. There's so much to tell out there. I'm telling you, nothing ever gets told because we don't have the resources to even expose this stuff. The amount of crimes that just go over people's heads that were really committed by illegals that should have never been committed because they shouldn't have been here. And if they were here, they should have been caught long ago and deported. We report on it here and there and you see the stories, but it's it's so much worse. And if we had that drumbeat the same way the left has on things that they feel seamlessly gives credence to their type of views – and their policy solutions, we would have a very different electorate. You wouldn't even be able to have a media or a Democrat elected official that could say, oh, there's no problem at our border. There's no crisis, nothing to see, nothing unusual, nothing worse than it's been. Oh, there's no problem with the cartels. Oh, actually, uh, um, they commit less crime. Oh, no, it's not a problem. Daniel, what are you talking about busting in illegals? You're making that up. This stuff I speak to with people that work in law enforcement when it's obvious this stuff is going on and and often for quite some time. But it's not obvious if you go for an entire generation without having a critical mass of money behind doing this. You need an organization. We really don't have that. The left has a seamless pipeline where they could – they control the law schools. They have a pipeline shoving the graduates into these Soros-run legal defense groups, seamlessly agitating for open borders, added, agitating for all sorts of election law anomalies, all this stuff, researching, telling sob stories about it, fighting on the legal side, on the cultural side, on the news side. We just don't have this. There's so few people doing what I'm doing And then even then, it's very hard for me to take this to the next level. So I don't know. I'm just speaking out loud here. And like I said, we're, you know, going to continue exploring different ways to make this show a little bit more interactive so you guys could get to know each other. Those of you who maybe live in border areas could get together. And like I said, you know, a couple of you have reached out to me and you know i'm working with with some of you guys have have already put me in contact with people that frankly i would not have been in contact with without you listening to this show and giving me that feedback so that's the thing what's often obvious in your communities you might be saying oh my gosh i mean illegal immigrants are just fleecing my my county and if people would only know this the story would only get out. It's not evident enough. There aren't very many people who are going to pick it up. There's a handful of, just a handful of people that cover cover this beat. Paul Bedard of Washington Examiner, Stephen Dynan of Washington Times. Um, you got the folks at Breitbart, Texas, under Brandon Darby's team. God bless him. Great guys. Not many. And we just, we don't have the resources. 
And then the other thing is the people who have the most information and intelligence on what is going on is the federal government. And even under the Trump administration, nothing has changed in terms of their public affairs offices. They will not work with us. You'll see the New Mexico piece. Nobody has done what I've done. And and look, it's an opinion piece, but there's a lot of meat in there, and it's my third article on it. No one else is going to be as emphatic in telling the story that CBP does put out in their press releases how the agents are being overwhelmed and the cartels are exploiting that and all the effects just vividly painting the picture of what that looks like. I tried to show it with you with this six-hour trip that the local EMS and Border Patrol have to make because of the lack of resources and how that takes both drains the county resources and the Border Patrol takes them off the the field and what the cartels can do with that. I have a lot more to talk about. And I wanted to get comment from, from a CBP guy. And I re- reached out to them and I, they said, when's your deadline? And I said, you know, today at noon or, or yesterday at noon. And of course, I never heard from them again. The Obama administration, they worked hand in glove with the left-wing media. Anything that would help their narrative, they got out. Some of you might remember Ben Rhodes, who was basically the PR guy at the National Security Agency. And I'm sorry, the NSC, National Security um committee and he just had the media eating out of his hands i'm saying i should be able to have border patrol recognize that i'm pretty much if not the most prolific among the most prolific writers and certainly speakers and show hosts on on the Multiple, multifaceted issues relating to all areas of immigration and the border. And how should they, they should take me by hand and give me tours so I could get out that message. It's just dumb. This is what Todd Benzman spoke about when we had him on the show. He's the foremost expert I know on just the one sphere of this issue, the Middle Easterners, special interest aliens coming in through the border and how much he knows about that. And he's like, why isn't the government getting this out? So then when the, when the issue comes up in the news, like Trump will reference it very quickly. The media will deny it and they'll laugh out of it. They're only able to do that because for so many years we haven't been putting out what's obvious to people working in the field. But what's not obvious to um, – to, uh, just what's going on here. It's not obvious to most other people. You have to show it. You have to show it over time. This is the most obvious thing. It, it's what Jason Jones always talks about when we had him on the show twice. That the government doesn't track or report on the data. That's how they're able to say, oh, no, they don't commit a lot of crime. It's like, are you kidding me? 
It's like anyone in law enforcement, DA, ICE, sheriffs all over. Do 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 illegal aliens are they the type to commit a greater share of of crime? It's like it's dull. We arrest them every second we see them on the streets. As one D agent told me, I can't remember the last time we did a major drug bust and it wasn't, you know, full of illegal aliens. They're all Mexican nationals, as he said. It doesn't get out. I mean, this is how we can go for, ye- for several years now talking about an opioid crisis of healthcare and prescriptions and pharmacology. When it's all an illicit drug problem coming from Mexican cartels because of the lack of interior enforcement, because of lack of border enforcement, because of the family units, because of the unaccompanied alien teenagers in particular, the nexus of all these problems we've spent hours together talking about, it's obvious to, to, to me now, but even to me, some of this stuff was new to me. This year, you know, certain principles I've known about for 15, 20 years in politics, certain things I've learned about recently. I didn't know much about drugs until last year. So certainly to other people, they still don't know about it. Even members of Congress are are beginning to use some of my terminology, some of the Freedom Caucus members, and I'm glad it's getting out there now. But this wasn't obvious to a lot of people. It's because all of the stories, it's never one or two stories here or there, but it's the amalgamation of of multiple narratives and anecdotes and the cumulative buildup that makes it that every American has kind of a ubiquitous sense in his consciousness that this is what's going on. Oh, there's, there's just a rash of school shootings. They should know there's a rash. Everyone should know that there is a crisis, for example, just to pick one thing, of illegal alien drunk drivers. It's obvious to anyone who follows that. But how much of this gets out there? It all gets back to the original sin, which is money, which is something we just don't have in this movement, particular, particularly on issues related to the big S's, sovereignty, security, Civil society. Systemic government reforms. It's another S word for you there. All things that are of vital importance to the foundation of, of everything we, we, we deal with. But there's no money behind any of that stuff. It's too abstract. All the money is on the other side. Follow the money. Screw the ranchers. Who are they, you know, when you have all these uh, ethnic front groups, big business, cultural institutions all getting together, they're left behind. So I'm just kind of lamenting here. I'm trying to find more ways to be a voice for those people. I'm not just here to collect a paycheck and go home, although it would be nice to spend more time with family rather than you know, obsessing about some of this stuff, but, you know, I really want to make a difference. And again, we're going to talk about ways together we can make a difference. That That's, like I said, my New Year's resolution. Don't hold me to it. It's still only February. We're going to try to make this work. But let's get on to some of the news of the day. And I'm sorry for just taking up 
extra time on this thing, but I think it was important uh, just because it does tie into what we're going to talk about in the news of the day. So obviously, a lot of you are seeing my Twitter rants throughout the morning. It's it's around midday now that I'm recording this, so this is very fluid. We have this insane prohibition on building the wall, omnibus, amnesty, catch and release, pile of Shatovsky, crap hole bill that was released very late at night by both Republicans and Democrats. And Trump has been signaling that he's not happy, but his White House was calling yesterday calling Hannity, calling Lou Dobbs, begging them to support this. Now, everything we talked about, about conservatives not having the resources and focus to make the policy case is the same thing with politics. This has been the story of this administration. We have a president who has a certain desire or potential in him to do the right thing more than a lot of other Republicans we've seen come along in many, many years, despite his personal flaws. But at the same time, because of his personal flaws, he's all over the place, could say one thing, could call for the death penalty for drug traffickers, and then let them out of jail or sign a bill letting them out of jail the next day, just because he's just, you know, <laughs> I was about to say nuance is lost on him, but it's not nuance. I mean, blatant things are lost on him. Details are not his thing. Everyone will agree to that. He has horrible staff led first and foremost by his son-in-law and daughter. He has all these coke people in his administration, particularly in the policy shop, in the legislative shop, that deals with this. And they're the ones that should be highlighting for the president what's wrong, and instead, they're trying to strong-arm conservatives to voice support for this. So the amazing thing here, and again, you know, it could be by the time you listen to this, the president will have gotten the message. But as of now, the White House was pressuring conservatives to support it. So we are literally, I, I, I always hate recording when things are fluid, but we're going to talk about the things that we can anyway that won't become obsolete. I don't want to waste your time. The details of the bill, we're going to have two articles out today, one on the immigration details of the bill, and then another just on the forgotten part, which is the spending, the spending levels of the rest of the bill. We're, we're not even focusing on that. Record debt. But I've been warning you until now, for two years, the proper course of action and the failures. I want to cite for you, and I'm going to link to this in show notes, a New York Times article from yesterday, Trump puts best face on border deal as aides try to assuage an angry right. So first of all, you see the usefulness of Lou Dobbs and Hannity, unlike Rush, by the way, but at least those finally trying to prod the president in the right direction. And you see the importance we saw this with jailbreak when Jared had to go on Fox and convince them all. So you see that that is where the linchpin is. You see how powerful so-called self-professed conservative voices are. 
And you see how they've been absent. Where were these people for two years when we had all three branches, when it would have been so much easier to do this? I screamed about it seven, eight times every single opportunity. And these people were silent or very muted, often telling us that the urine that was being sent our way Splashed on our leg is really water. Now, when it's a lot more difficult, suddenly they're a little bit more uh, feisty. So, all right, I'll take it. But still, they are not, they still don't have the guts to call for the resignation of Jared Kushner, who orchestrated this entire failed strategy, for the resignation of DiStefano. Who is a former Boehner aide who heads the legislative shop after the previous Coke guy left? Brooke Rollins, another policy advisor working under Jared, who comes from the Coke world and is the architect of jailbreak. They need to be stronger. I'm, I'm glad Laura Ingram is emphatically opposing this. I mean, you would think someone who spent her entire career. On the immigration issue, yeah, you know, of course. But the point is, I want to read to you a part of this New York Times article. Okay? They quote a guy named James Jake Carafano, national security analyst at the Heritage Foundation. I used to work there. Very sad what has become of it. And he said the following. People say, well, the president lost. The analogy here is if it's a 10-round fight, Trump's fighting 10 rounds. If Pelosi wants to say at the end of round one, I won the round, Trump's like, yeah, maybe, but I'm fighting 10 rounds. This, folks, is what our job is today to debunk. There's the group of Trump sycophants, and I don't mean in a good way, the ones that support Trump's campaign promises, but the personality in it, which is not even his personality. It's basically their supporters of Jared that will not speak the truth here, the point they're missing. They're going to try to say, oh, this is just the beginning. You could do things executively. 55 miles is better than nothing. They're wrong on all fronts. This is worse than nothing, a lot worse. The amnesty and catch and release provisions are much worse than the 55 miles of wall. And as I will explain, he won't even get the 55 miles of wall because of other provisions. It will undermine legally and politically his ability to call an emergency and build it executively. But they're missing the point on the 10 rounds. That's exactly my point. This is a full year's omnibus bill. It closes the fight. Fight over. I'm arguing to make it 10 rounds. What we're arguing is to say keep demanding that you will only sign – two-week, three-week CRs as you ratchet up executive policies and that you further pressure the Democrats. So you do have a round two and a round three and a round four. They're precluding that by ending it for the entire fiscal year. That's the point a lot of people are missing. There's one thing if you had this bill, these provisions ensconced in a three-week CR. But no, it's a full-year omnibus bill. Moreover, defenders of this are missing the point that we've had 10 rounds, literally, 
What do you think the last two years were? The next time, the next time. We've already done this. This is not the first round. This is quite literally roughly, I lost track, but if you look at all the budget deadlines, this is roughly around 10 rounds. Imagine if when I called for this fight, I remember what I said in July and August, that they should have kept Congress in session. Trump should have given a speech, and you know, back then you didn't have to worry about Pelosi blocking him from speaking in the House chamber. Republicans controlled it. He should have given that speech, which he had a 72% approval on that speech. You see the power of it. His approval rating, Gallup, uh, overall approval of his presidency went up by seven points. Imagine if he would have given that in August, made these demands, had the government shut down, and then McConnell would have been on the hot seat because he says he hates shutdowns, but it would be all on him refusing to modify the filibuster. Now, even if you modify it, it won't help because Democrats control the House. Now, look, in my view, if you have a party that's properly messaging this and constantly in the Senate forcing Democrats to take votes on the El Chapo bill, to take votes on the cartels and sanctuary cities and criminal aliens, I think you could possibly win it even with Democrats in control. But they wouldn't do this even with Republicans in control. So, you know, before we get to today, we cannot let them off the hook. Trump, his advisors, and frankly, these so-called conservative voices. We don't have a conservative movement consistently building a narrative and exposing the truth on anything policy-wise and politics. And that is why we are where we are, we are today. So that's the first thing. Now let's go through the bill. Right now, I know we have some non-conservative listeners, and I, I thank you for tuning in to get a different perspective. I want to speak to all of you for the first provision as you know, nonpartisan. From any ideological standpoint, it's immoral what all of them are doing today. How could you vote on a 1,169-page bill that funds seven entire departments and all of its policies for the remainder of the fiscal year when you post it within the day you vote on it? There is no way you couldn't defend that. I don't care if you're a liberal or conservative. If you're a liberal, you have the same limited time that us conservatives have to look over it. Maybe there's provisions you don't like. Not just a, It's not just an immigration bill. DHS is one department. It's, it's seven departments. Maybe there's things you don't like about it. You're not going to know. This stuff is written in vague, unassuming language. Pursuant to statute, do-do-do-do. Uh, provision of the, it doesn't say straight out, Trump can't build the wall in these circumstances or many other provisions. And it's precisely the most controversial that they bury and ensconce in that. And by the way, I have been told and I've experienced this that often, so if it's a PDF, you could do a word search that right that, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not reading 1169 pages. You, you look at the, you first target Obviously, I'm mainly focusing on immigration, so you target the DHS title. You target the things at the end of the bill, last 10 pages they tacked on. We'll get to that. And then you do word searches. I have experienced in the past where 
I would do a word search and the thing wouldn't come up. And then I'm told something's in the bill. I'm like, why can't I find it? What I have learned is that they will often code the PDF certain um, – and, and I'm, I am really ignorant on computer tech. Like you know, my, my eight-year-old son knows more than me. But if I'm saying this right, I mean those of you who know will know immediately what I'm talking about or if I'm saying it wrong. They will code those operative words as pictures instead of text so it won't be searchable. I don't. I can't tell you definitively that happened in this bill, but that is something to watch for. And these are all reasons why you cannot vote on a bill like this. Forget about Trump border fight wall. Just in general. For, for example, just today they posted a bill. I started working off of it, and then a friend of mine showed me that they updated it. The first version was 1159 pages. The second version was 10 pages longer. That version, they added at the end, doubling of H-2B slave labor visas that bring in a bunch of public charges that then have anchor babies that we have to pay for. What else is in those 10 pages? There's a couple of more extension of certain immigration provisions, but it doesn't name them. It says section this, this. So I have to sit and read it. Members haven't read this. It's immoral. It's doubly immoral in these circumstances. And I know I'm still on the process, but the process is important. There's one thing if Congress had a modus operandi where every year they were careful to pass a full year appropriation before the beginning of the fiscal year on September 30th. And you're in a rush and you got the agreement you want to do it. That would be bad enough. But that ship has sailed. We're, we're already four and a half months into this fiscal year operating on short-term CR stopgap bills. So you've crafted a long-term negotiation here. There is no possible sane explanation for why you would have a rush within a day that this day it must be passed. Again, just speaking left, right, center, whatever it is, you would have a one-week, two-week, three-week CR stopgap why you could learn about the bill and debate it. Right? There's, there's literally no rush. It makes no sense. Remember, the analysis that I gave today in my article, I'll link to it in show notes, is just on immigration provisions. It's not even all of DHS. I didn't read it all. You could imagine, and this is where I have my expertise, so I know what to look for. You could imagine when you have, oh, this is extended of this provision in this title code of HUD, of commerce, of labor. Who knows what else is it? We don't know. So the first important thing is that we don't know. How do you vote on something like this? This is quintessentially what we should all agree as Americans of all ideological stripes. What's wrong with the way they operate? The only possible reason, the only possible reason why you would ever do such a thing is because you want to hide bad things. Otherwise, there's quite literally no explanation. I mean, they're waving their you, – you would think Democrats would want to keep their 72-hour rule a little better than Republicans did just the first time. No. The first time, first opportunity, they're violating it. They have a busy day because the Senate's voting on the attorney general nomination, which is a pretty big deal, William Barr. It's a pretty big vote. 
the house has um the funeral of Walter Jones. God bless him, may he rest in peace. Great guy. I didn't agree with him on everything, but he he really was a maverick and and really was a pioneer in explaining why the Iraq war was wrong. Um so I mean, but Steny Hoyer said, we will vote on this. We will waive all the rules. There's a reason why these people are salivating for this bill. See, if this were just like, yeah, it kind of, no runs, no hits, no errors, didn't give Trump what he wants, they wouldn't be salivating for it. They're salivating for this bill. And that's what we're going to get into now, the political provisions. So first off, it's important to point out, as we're doing this live, I could see there's now a feeding frenzy where we're finally breaking through. And I'm not complaining. It's a good thing in this case, but I'm just saying it just demonstrates everything in this movement is groupthink. There are no leaders. There's only followers. So the few times where we succeed in flooding the zone and creating a feeding frenzy, then it becomes kosher, so to speak. It becomes okay to then join the bandwagon. Yeah, Mr. President, you got to veto this. But when it's not so cool, then they're defending it. And there still are defenders. But I'm just saying, that's how it works. If the first 10 people on Twitter say a certain thing, you know, you, you don't want to be the odd man out. You're like, yeah, this is bad. So we made it cool to bash the bill. All right, so that's a good thing. I'm just saying, often that's a problem where it's not cool and you have to make it cool and we don't have a critical mass doing it. But anyway, let, let, let's just cut straight to the biggest problems. This bill has an enormous amnesty in it. So it's not just a matter of how much wall, even detention beds, some of the parsimonious stuff. The biggest thing is Section 224A of this bill. It is a massive amnesty in the sense that, you know, it would totally categorically grant amnesty to hundreds of thousands of new illegals that were never even pondered directly under the recent amnesty offers. But it is probably the most pernicious form of amnesty that one could ever dream of. It literally speaks to what is engendering the current invasion, and it will create an entirely new wave of an invasion and have the worst cascading effects that are immoral. As you know, commensurate with what the courts say, literally within a couple weeks, not even months, it creates, you see it at the border, it creates an entire new industry and economy from Central America up through the cartels in Mexico to shovel in those very type of people. So it started off in 2014 with the so-called unaccompanied alien children, UACs, the Central American punk teenagers, many of whom are MS-13, or just get roped into it and are very problematic. We've spoken about that a lot. That was the DACA migration. That was the migration where we said, if you are a kid coming here, We will never deport you. And in fact, we're going to grant you executive amnesty. And boom, so a bunch of kids came. Some were even more than 18 years old because they don't have any documentation, so they could lie about it. 
predominantly 15 to 20 year old males from Central America. Need I say more? As regular listeners understand, I've written copious articles on this. This is what spawned single-handedly the massive growth of the transnational gangs over the last couple of years and connected to that much of the drug trafficking in many ways. That's what happened with that. Now, it wasn't until later where we had the family units. That was, and really last year, it was, you. I plotted it on a graph with the apprehension numbers when Judge Sabra said that you have to, you come here with a kid, not only is the kid released, but the parents have to be released with the kid. That created an entire economy for coming here with kids where it's actually to the point where just on Monday, CBP announced, I'm sorry, they didn't announce, actually speaking, harking back to our opening monologue here, that the administration will not work with conservatives and they give exclusive information to liberals like the Washington Post. Washington Post reported from an unnamed anonymous CBP source, so that means that they have people leaking stuff to them but not to people like me who would help their case – that on Monday, we had 1,800 family units come in, a record, all-time record for a single 24-hour period. 58% of all migration now is family units. It's astounding if you understand the history of legal immigration. But it's not really astounding. It's very predictable because it's exactly commensurate with magnets. It's all about our self-immolation. It's all about the courts and the executive policies. So we still have the UACs, but now the big thing is family units. Okay, next step. Now, how do these teenagers come here? How do they come? They don't come on their own. It is – I'm having trouble putting into words to give over to you the depth of perfidy in this provision they put in. We are essentially paying for our own invasion, paying for our own drug deaths, paying for our own cartel deaths, paying for the empowerment of the cartels, paying for the gangs, paying for destroying our schools and hospitals, paying in order to pay hundreds of billions of dollars a year on illegal immigration and anchor babies. So the 2008 Wilberforce anti-trafficking bill says two things. Everyone thinks, oh, if you're from, if you're a minor coming from Central America, we can't deport you. That is not true. There's more stipulations added to that. If you are a a victim of quote, okay, this is in the statute. You are a victim of a severe form of trafficking, and so two criterion, and you don't have any guardian or relatives present in America. Okay? In one of the most evil bastardizations of the rule of law and our sovereignty, these very teenagers are self-trafficked. Right? Because the the statute makes sense. If, If you're 
kidnapped and slammed across the border against your will and brought here and you have no one here, well, yeah, we'll treat you like a refugee. That applies to 0% of them. They are self-trafficked and almost all of them indeed have family that themselves previously violated our sovereignty and are currently here illegally and are paying the most evil cartels and funding all their activities and empowering them so they could screw us and bring in people that massive percent of them get involved in ganging activity themselves. Massive percentage of them are drug mules that funnel in all of the drugs. Okay? So that is where we are until now. That's what's been happening until now. Now, for so long, we were promised by Trump that we were going to fix this and not not only not treat them as refugees, but locate the people sponsoring them and housing them. And if they themselves are illegal, deport them as well. Deport the human traffickers. Deport the drug traffickers. It's the Carter bill. Congressman John Carter from Texas would has a bill that would mandate that. Now, you don't need a new bill like anything else. I mean, this is current law. This bill... Provision 224A that the Trump White House is calling up conservatives to support. You know what it does? It gives amnesty and prohibits the deportation of anyone who is housing, sponsoring, related to these teenagers. So not only does that give amnesty to hundreds of thousands of the worst illegal aliens. But do you understand what that's going to do based on what's happening now with the baseline UAC migration and the family units? That's going to create a massive surge of any, any number of the 15 or so million illegals in this country will now hire coyotes and, and the cartels to bring in any number of children from Central America. Whether they're kidnapped, whether they're not their children, they'll make deals. Think about what you would do. This is an open-ended amnesty. It's not like a confined, even a confined population. It's It's an invitation to anyone who wants to traffic a kid. They don't have to prove that in DNA that they're related to them. They sponsor them. So, you know, if I'm here as an illegal with all my family, I don't, I don't have any children left there, but I have friends who are. I have friends who have children. I'll go to that friend who's here illegally but has a kid, and I don't, and I'll say, hey, let's make a deal. You sponsor this kid. I sponsor this kid. We're all shielded from deportation. So even the ones without that, the amount of evil stuff that you're going to create for the cartels and kidnapping and sex trafficking. This is how immoral these people are. Let me tell you, this provision would not be worth 2,000 miles of fencing up into the sky. 
because we're treating them as refugees. So they come at the points of entry or the cartels will bring them over the wall. They surrender themselves. They are treated as refugees, resettled. And now almost any other illegal trafficking them. They might not officially get refugee status, but they get amnesty from deportation. That is how evil this bill is. And by the way, my article just came out. I'm going to link to it. Five insane provisions in the amnesty omnibus bill. This is Trump's Elijah on Mount Carmel moment. This is his moment to shine. This is the time when he has to choose between God and Baal. Are you with the swamp that you campaigned against or are you part of it? Or are you are you the most spectacular implementer of the swamp in a bigly way? Are you a liar or do you really care about what you speak about? Okay? That is where this is. Very simple. Stop lying to us. Stop saying you're going to clamp down on drug traffickers and then give amnesty to drug traffickers. Stop saying you're going to stop the loopholes and then never even ask for them. I mean, that's an important thing. Keep in mind, the, 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 what we were promised here was $25 billion in wall funding and getting rid of catch and release, florist, UAC loophole, an asylum loophole. Then Trump never even asked for the loopholes and just goes straight to $5.6 billion in wall funding. Democrats say, no, we're giving you $1.6 billion. And then they agree to a bill that's $1.375 billion, even less. And not only don't fix this stuff, but exacerbate it. Trump called for more ICE deportation agents. Nothing in there. More border agents, nothing in there. More immigration judges, nothing in there. Not that I even I'm so into that, but you get what I mean. So aside from the amnesty provision, which is essentially an MS-13 Protection Act, um, you know, it, it's just it's unreal. It's even worse. So aside from the amnesty provision, you know what this bill does. It funds, I'm trying to get the exact wording here, but it funds more facilitation of managing the invasion and resettling these very invaders than deterring them. So there's $1.375 billion in wall funding, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Um, and in addition... In addition, it actually mandates, mandates more funding for the parts of ICE that resettle these people. So, for example, lots of different provisions. It has more money and an increase in cap for what's called ATD, Alternatives to Detention Program. This means where they house them in the interior, not at the border, where they're essentially let go. It increases funding for that. 
as we mentioned before already, this we knew, it has a 17.5% cut in the detention beds, 49,060 to 40,520, when Trump asked for more. And believe me, you're going to need more when the, with this invasion. It offers $3.4 billion for refugee resettlement, a $74 million increase over last year. $3.4 billion for refugee resettlement. Now, you might say, all right, Daniel, well, that's a different issue. I know you don't like refugee resettlement. No. When you think of refugee resettlement, you're probably thinking of, oh, the people we bring in from Muslim countries or Congo or Ukraine or whatever. No. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of it. But again, it's the Central Americans are treated under the refugee resettlement program, under the Office of Refugee Resettlement in HHS. That's what's getting funded here in part. It actually increases that. It increases funding, $192 million for improved medical care, transportation, and consumables to better ensure the health and safety of migrants who are temporarily in U.S. custody, ICE custody, which winds up not being temporary. So you see what they're willing to fund. Nothing to deter and everything to manage the invasion. Infant formula, diapers, it's all in there to further encourage. And again, you put all the provisions together that you don't deal with the magnets. You further encourage it. You have the amnesty and the worst form of amnesty. I hope you guys understand how severe it is. I mean, again, and, and every second as I'm recording, this, this comes in even worse. Which proves the point that you need to read it to understand the intricacies and the amalgamation and interplay of, of multiple provisions together. It's like it's bad when you have A, but then we have A, B, and C together. It makes A even worse. All sorts of these provisions. As I mentioned, they tack on doubling of low-skilled visas. H2B, that's just another thing. It's unbelievable. What's with this ATD program? As I have a quote from Jessica Vaughn in my um, article, quote, most of these people have no intention of asking for asylum and know they don't qualify for it, but are simply joining the legal population knowing it's unlikely that they will be deported. The bill funds case management staff to keep tabs on those who don't abscond immediately, but no money for ICE officers to find and remove them. This is going to saddle the communities that have been forced to absorb these new arrivals with billions of dollars of future costs for schooling, healthcare, and other welfare services. That's the hidden unfunded liability on the states and localities. That costs a lot more than the $1.375 billion of the border wall. I'm not done yet. There's another provision here that significantly increases the disclosure requirements and paperwork of ICE regarding detention data. Why do you think they're doing that? See, some people are claiming, no, Daniel, you don't understand. Well, it statutorily reduces the beds by 17.5%, but there's other avenues to reprogram DHS funding if you want more beds. So it doesn't really do that. That's what these apologists are saying. But what this demonstrates is that Congress is going to be watching that number like a hawk and is now demanding, um, de demanding more stuff. 
demanding more disclosure. I don't know. This is insane. And I'm sorry, it's just very difficult doing a show like this today. I, I I was weighing, you know, the pluses and minuses of doing it when I'm a little bit distracted and things are very fluid versus wanting to give you at least the most up-to-date information that I have now. I want you guys to hear this. You you gotta call the White House. Congress is not worth it because it's meaningless. If Trump supports it, it's over. If he doesn't, he'll force McConnell to pull it. So you know, forget about calling Congress or McConnell. I mean, that would you know that doesn't hurt. But again, to leave a comment, 202-456-6213, 202-456-6213, and tell them that this is the worst form of amnesty. It's a disgrace. It's immoral on every level. Does nothing to address the factors that are driving this invasion indeed exacerbates it in the worst ways with the worst form of amnesty. And the only funding increases they have for DHS are the ones that actually manage the invasion. Now look, this would be bad enough if truly it gave Trump 55 miles of border wall. But it doesn't. It contains a bunch of very surreptitious limitations on the use of wall funding. Number one, to begin with, it limits it just to the Rio Grande Valley. Right For those of you who aren't familiar, there's nine border sectors going from east to west. If you start from east in Brownsville at the Gulf of Mexico, that first sector going to roughly Laredo, Texas, is the Rio Grande Valley sector. That has had the most traffic traditionally over the last five years of this invasion. But the biggest increase is in New Mexico, as you well, as I've talked about a lot, and and I have a feeling that that's going to overtake it because of some of the stepped-up enforcement by Texas authorities in the area. So that means that no fencing could be done in New Mexico or anywhere else where we need it. It has to be done in the Rio Grande Valley. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. There's something, there's a reason why they put that in. And it's a, in a, another example of how provision A and B, once you get to B, you understand why they put an A and how the two work together to screw us. Number number two is, once again, and this was, they were going to do this the whole time, but it, you know, so it's not new, but it's still important to point out. It limits it only to the bollard fencing, the, the, the long see-through poles, not any concrete of any kind. Now, I understand that Border Patrol has said they want to see through and be able to see what's going on on the other side. But what this ensures is that you cannot build any other version in any way, in any place where it might be deemed appropriate. For example, you could easily build the first 10 feet of height with the see-through bollards and then have the subsequent 15 feet of solid concrete on top of it. There's a prototype like that that they that they have. So you would, you know, Border Patrol would be, able, would be able to see what's going on, but you would still have the more solid thing that's hard to climb over. And then, for example, like one of the things that I think is you should have barbed wire really electrified, ideally, and put up a bunch of signs warning people about it so they don't get electrocuted. 
on top of that. See, part of the things that's already happening, there's pictures of, of it from CBP and Yuma because the Yuma sector already has 18-foot bowlers. It's pretty high. The cartels are giving them ladders. Now, again, like I noted before, that wouldn't be a problem if we didn't have legal amnesty where they could surrender themselves. If we're going to prosecute them or certainly just immediately return them, they're not going to want to get caught. So then the border wall would help because you know you could give them a ladder, but by the time you orchestrate all the people over it, we're going to see you. We're going to apprehend you. You can't sneak that through. That's something that you can only do because of the policies that are in place. But one of the interesting ways to get around that – now, there's always ways the cartels get around, but it make it a lot harder – is if you had – see, you know, you, you, could, you could get a massive ramp that they could – the cartels could build – to reach 25 feet high and get to the peak of the you know the landing point on top and then they give them the infrastructure to scale it down on the rope or whatever but if you don't have anything solid to land on if you have 3 to 5 feet of barbed dangerous barbed wire on top of that they can't land on it and they can't get over it really without endangering themselves even if if you have a barbed wire if you have a, a ramp or some sort of ladder by the cartels. So again, you don't want to limit yourself to this. This is very important. Because again, if you're not going to get rid of the policies, and in fact, in this bill, aggravate and exacerbate the policies, then the, the, even if you have a wall, it won't help. Next provision. Section 231 prohibits construction even within the RGV in five locations, four of them are federal lands, national parks. One's a state park of Texas. So A, that you know limits more areas where you can't do it, but there's something more fundamental if you understand how egregious that provision is. Um, one of the points of contention, why we've had the least amount of fencing in Texas of all the states is because in Texas, more so than the other three states at the border, there in those states, the, the the much of the border is is federal land. So you know it's easier for the federal government to control build fencing. Here you have to navigate the um, legalities and just the uh, you know political problems of private land. And this is going to lead to the next point. But much of the land in the Rio Grande Valley is not just private. But it's bought up by the cartels or people sympathetic to them. That's the whole problem with that area. All the ranchers moved out. We don't have conservative ranchers in that area. So they might not give provision, per- permission. Now, look, you know how much of a strong supporter of private property rights I am. But remember, just before we get to anything, I just want to divert to this discussion because I think it's important. There's a lot of pseudo-conservatives and libertarians that are talking about eminent domain and it's terrible and – Eminent domain is in the Constitution. Okay, let's make something very clear. What we oppose and what the problem with the Kilo decision is private use. So if it's some land developer that has you know connections to politicians, he could seize your land. That's a problem. But public use, and there's nothing greater than our national international border. I'm sorry, but you know. <laughs> For the whole of the union, that's why we have a federal government. That's why the provisions in the Constitution. We have to reimburse you, but we absolutely can, and in this case, should 
use that land for the wall. I'm sorry. It's indefensible to oppose that. That is the quintessential manifestation and the very intent behind Article 5. You know, a lot of people think, oh, eminent domain is unconstitutional. No, no, no. Private use eminent domain is unconstitutional. That part is down, the public use is downright in the Constitution itself. And, you know, again, you, you just have to be reimbursed. But I digress. Nonetheless, you could imagine tons of lawsuits, lots of political problems with it. So the first areas you want to build are on public lands. And those are the areas they wall off. No pun intended. They wall off from the wall. And again, as I noted on my show earlier this week, or last week, I forget, the national parks are endangered. I have it on good word, at least in New Mexico, but I think this has been going on for a while all over. Park rangers who aren't even allowed to carry guns have been held by gunpoint by cartels and drug smugglers. Sometimes drug growers growing drugs, guarding them with M4s on federal BLM or national park lands. Okay? These areas need to be protected. But then there's the most important provision, 232A. 232A is what ensures that 55 miles of fence is in fact zero miles. This bill gives local officials, elected local officials, local elected officials, that's the wording of the text, essentially veto power over the bill, over construction. It says that DHS shall confer and seek to reach mutual agreement regarding the design and alignment of physical barriers within the city with these local officials, quote, prior to the use of any funds made available by this act for construction of physical barriers. So it's any physical barrier. If you wanted to build a Normandy um, style uh, vehicle barrier, you'd have to confer. It weakens current law. It goes backwards. Meaning, not the, only does it ensure no mi- miles will be built, it actually goes backwards. This is where they're wrong by saying, well, I understand it's a crap sandwich, but there's nothing Trump can do. Um, you know, 55 miles is better than none. No. It's zero miles, and it makes it worse, and then all the other amnesty provisions we spoke about notwithstanding. It says that such consultations shall continue until September 30th or until an agreement is reached (laughs) and may be extended beyond that date by agreement of the parties and no funds made available in this act shall be used for such construction while consultations are continuing. While consultations are continuing. So it allows these officials to filibuster it. Now you're going to understand the brilliance of what they did. Why did they only limit this to the Rio Grande Valley? The Rio Grande Valley is a blank hole. It is the most liberal part of the country. You know, like you have Travis County. Everyone knows Austin, Texas is the most liberal part of Austin, right? That's like 60-25 Hillary over Trump. These counties are 80-18 Hillary. It's, it's, It's de facto Mexico. We spoke about that last week. The politics of it. It's very sinister. The elected officials are bought off by the cartels. 
They're all in support of this. Not, not a single elected official supports a wall. They'll kill it. Meaning there's one thing if you allow him to build wall fencing everywhere. So you could say in a place like Cochise or Yuma, um, Arizona, the local officials will agree. In RGV, that they know this. This is why they did it. It was a brilliant provision. So all of the Beto O'Rourke type of politicians, that's what you have in that area, have de facto veto power. This is why Trump needs to say, we need a clean CR. Why we can read this? Democrats will have no leverage to shut down the government when he offers a clean CR. That's all we're asking for, clean CR. Finally, there's one, there's so much more to say, but I'm, I'm going to end with one additional point. And that is, this, this is not only going backwards. This nukes his, his political and legal leverage to declare an emergency and build walls executively. I want to go back a little bit and give you guys some background. Some of you might be familiar with what's called the Bollard Amendments during the Iran-Contra affair in 1983 and 1985. This is exactly what they did. There was a fight between Reagan and Congress. Reagan wanted to stop the communists, the Sandinistas in um, Nicaragua and fund the Contras to overthrow them. Congress, led by Ted Kennedy and others, Senator Bullard, who was also from Massachusetts at the time, they, did, they of course, loved the communists, supported them, supported the Soviet Union, and they, they, didn't, they didn't want this. So you had a fight. And you know there was a lot of different nuances, like you have with any funding of foreign aid and DOD and State Department funding. There's what you need statute for. There's what you have under existing authority. You know It gets complicated. There's executive powers. And he was trying to move around. And all right, well, you don't, you're not going to allow CIA to do this because the CIA was you know, caught mining the ports there. And that, that's what set, set off the Democrats. So all right. So Reagan was like, I'll have the National Security Council. And that's where Oliver North got roped into it. He was in the NSC at the time. We'll have NSC use their funding to do it. So what they did is, is they attached amendments to a funding bill to not just make it worse, but to prohibit executive action. That is how they ensnared Reagan in Iran-Contra, the Bullard Amendments. What they are doing today with immigration and the border is essentially that. They are putting limitations, giving veto power. I don't know if it I don't know what the truth is, but it's enough that they could litigate this in court and say, hey, even if you have executive authority, but this is a new overriding statute that now says that you have to have local authority. All these other limitations. Local, uh, you know, conferring with the local officials. It overrides it. In other words, we, we know that the courts are going to undermine him even when he has legitimate authority. But I'm just telling you, I think even a legitimate court could take a look at this statute and say, hey, you know, this overrides it. I don't know. I have to think about that. I'm not going to tell you categorically would override the Emergencies Act. But this is why you got to be careful. 
but moreover politically. How could Trump make the case that this is an emergency and sign a bill like this that totally ignores all of the issues, exacerbates them, and, and goes for less funding than Democrats signed off last time? Oh, but but I'll, uh, it's an emergency. No, you say this is unacceptable. We're going to do it. We're going to continue the stopgap for another three weeks while we negotiate it. And that's when you pull the trigger on the emergency. So don't tell me, oh, Trump has no other option. I've given an eight-step approach to this. Anyway, a lot going on. I got to run, get back on the on the helm here, but wanted you guys to have the definitive update here. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll be back again tomorrow to discuss this stuff. I need your support in more ways than you guys think. We're going to talk about that at another date. You know, harking back to our opening of the show. I hope this was helpful. God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.